Uh, let me just uh, pray very briefly for us to start. Um, Father God, I just uh, pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would be present. Praise you. Uh, the Holy Spirit is present and that um, you would be glorified and uh, broken vessel that I am, that somehow through uh, our conversation today, um, truth would come forth um, and it would be beneficial to all of us. Amen. Amen. Well, um, you got a sub today. Uh, Gil uh, was supposed to be teaching, but if you've seen Gil today, uh, you know that Gil uh, has uh, repaired years of uh, competitive baseball on his shoulder and um, is uh, out of commission just for a little while, but we'll have Gil back soon. So I am going to uh, take over teaching part two of a series that Cameron started last week. I don't know how many of you were able to make it to Cameron's talk last week. It was really outstanding. Um, but we've been trying to come at this two ways. So the idea of the class, obviously, is answer the question to your children, Mom and Dad, why do I have to go to church? Uh, Cameron focused on the worship aspect of it. That is, um, that we are called to worship God, called to worship Him corporately. And we come to church on Sundays to do that. Um, not exactly the opposite view, but sort of the opposing view, not our worship to God, but what we receive from him is the focus of today's class. We are called to come to church regularly every Sunday to be fed. The title of the class, uh, which Gil came up with, Beggars in Need of Grace. Obviously, uh, in part a reference to what we say, right? We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under that table. We are beggars coming to the Lord weekly for grace that we receive that we do not deserve. So we come to church for that purpose. Um, if you didn't get a chance to listen to Cameron's talk, I'd encourage you to do, to do that. I would also, just as an aside, I don't know how many of you follow John Piper or follow his outstanding blog, Desiring God. By pure coincidence this week, uh, John Piper uh, did a talk that really compliments Cameron's well uh, on why we are called to engage in corporate worship every week. So that's desiringgod.org. There's a section on there called Ask Pastor John, and there's a whole uh, talk transcribed for you um, that, that Cameron's was better, right? But um, John, John Piper's wasn't so bad either. So, okay. So this week we're going to talk about how we need to be fed. Um, we're going to talk about what is the food that we need, and then at the end we're going to try to talk about how do we relay that to our children. So it's kind of a two-step process, right? I mean, you have to answer the question first. You know, for ourselves, to, to talk to our children, we have to answer the question for ourselves. Why do I think or why? what is the truth of why we have to go to church every Sunday? And then break it down for our children. Now, so if you're me, it was actually a three-step process because, you know, uh, Cameron said, hey, Oscar, you teach this class. I was like, yeah, I believe we should go to church every Sunday. And then I realized I didn't really know why myself the answer to that was. So I had to go try to figure out the answer and hopefully have found some truth from the Bible, maybe, uh, to relate to you. And then we can have a conversation together about how we might relay that to our children. Okay. All right. Coming off a little off the top rope to start with, Okay. <laughs> Exodus 20, 8 through 10, which, of course, is the Ten Commandments. Um, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Um, there's not a lot of wiggle room there, right? I mean, 
Um, it doesn't say, remember the Sabbath unless you were out late the night before, or remember the Sabbath unless you're on vacation, or remember the Sabbath unless there's a marathon. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. Um, and I think we have to wrestle with it. Um, and I mean, I say that fully aware of how unmeetable a standard that is. I say that with the hypocrisy and irony of someone whose family is not here this Sunday because they're sick, uh, of someone who missed church this morning to finish preparing this lesson. So there you got it. Me, a broken sinner too. But it is a commandment, and it's there, and we have to wrestle with it. Um, I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with this, the Jesus Storybook Bible. I'm sure everyone with young children is familiar with it because of when it came out. But let me just tell you, like, it, it doesn't matter how old your children are if you have children. I believe everyone should own this. I really do. I think it is an outstanding resource. When my wife taught high school Bible study for several years, she used it all the time with her high school girls. Um, if you're, if you're, you know, one of the people who really likes the message or the living Bible, it's kind of in that vein. I mean, it takes the truth of the gospel and puts it in ways that even I can understand it. But I'm going to read very briefly what um, this says about the commandments. Here we go. It says, God called Moses up to the mountain. The great mountain shook. A thick cloud fell. Thunder roared. Lightning crackled. And God gave Moses ten rules called commandments. I want you to love me more than anything else in the world. And know that I love you, God told them. That's the most important thing of all. God gave other rules like don't make yourselves pretend gods. Don't kill people or steal or lie. It's not in here, but obviously remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The rules showed God's people how to live and how to be close to him and how to be happy. They showed how life worked best. God's promise to always look after you, Moses says. Will you love him and keep these rules? We can do it. Yes, we promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules. God knew they couldn't, and he wanted them to know it too. All right, so... You know, I, I know at any good church, and including the Advent, when we start talking about the law, people get a little itchy. Um, and when we start talking about things we've been commanded to do, people get a little itchy. But I love the way the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. God gave us this commandment, and every commandment, but we're talking about this one today, because it's part of how life works best. It's part of what makes us happiest. So I think the question for us today and for our children is why? has God commanded us to keep the Sabbath holy? Why does, to use the language of the storybook Bible, life work best when we keep the Sabbath holy? Why are we happiest when we keep the Sabbath holy? Okay. Obviously, I mean, y'all, some of y'all will be familiar with this story from Mark where Jesus is talking about the Sabbath. Um, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. 
And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So I think there's some clues in here um, as to why God made the Sabbath for us, why life works best when we keep the Sabbath. Keller, speaking specifically about the passage we just read in Mark, put it this way. There is work underneath our work that we really need to rest from. For almost all of us, unless God comes into our lives, we're working and we're doing things to prove ourselves, to convince God, others, and ourselves that we are good people. And that work is never over unless we rest in the gospel. I think the message here, I think that the message reading Exodus and Mark together is that none of us is immune from working to prove ourselves to our families, to our employers, to our employees, to our spouses, to our children. Um, We are all, whether consciously or subconsciously or maybe even unconsciously, are engaged in these self-salvation projects in a million different ways every day, constantly. Um, And of course, that's true for our children as well. And as the parent of a five-year-old, I've become increasingly aware that's true of our children no matter how young they are. Um, You see, even with a young child, this desire, this effort, this constant work to somehow prove themselves worthy of their peers, of their parents, of everything in the world around them. Um, Spending some time with Cameron and working some with our high school students, this is just acutely true with high school students. I mean, my goodness, I I don't, it scares me as the parent of a five-year-old seeing the constant pressure that is put on high school students today to make the grades, to make the football team or the dance team, um, to you know get the part in the play, to do all of it, to get into the right college. And, the, and, then, and that's not even entering into the equation, just the enormous and constant pressure of finding love and approval from peers. Um, you know, we're all in equal need of Sabbath rest. You know, I, that is the truth of the Bible. But, I, you know, to quote... Animal Farm. I mean, high, high school students are, you know, in more equal need of Sabbath rest. It's just, it is crushing to them as you interact with them. The work that they are doing every day, constantly, to try to earn their own salvation. And, and, and I want to be clear, that's true of even kids who understand the gospel. It's just an inseparable consequence of the fall, that this is the way they are existing. And God knew that, Right? I mean, God knew that that God knew that that was true when He created the earth after the fall. He knew it was true when Jesus came, and He knew it would be true in 2016 in Birmingham, Alabama, for kids who go to Homewood or Mountain Brook or Vestavia or Hoover Indian Springs that they would be engaged uh, in this constant work from which they needed rest to prove themselves. Um. So that kind of answers the why. Why a little bit, but I think to, to get to the next layer, we're going to have to talk about the what. What is it about Sunday mornings um, that we experience that is the food, the food for which we're begging, that is the antidote to this? Um, just a little context. 
we know the early church. From the very beginning, they were keeping the Sabbath on Sundays. And in Acts 2, um, you know, which, I mean, if you know, you know what Acts is, right? You, know, you have the Gospels, and the Gospels come to an end, and uh, almost immediately we start talking about the early church and what the early Christians are doing um, after the time of Jesus. So in Acts 2, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, which, I mean, at least theoretically is what we are supposed to and are doing, and I think we do at the Advent on Sundays today. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here's kind of the critical part. And, you know, I don't read Greek, right? Um, And don't know, but, you know, in preparing for this lesson, most commentators universally agree that this is not just, I mean, we do know at this time the early church, they were all kind of living together and working together and sort of sharing their resources to, to, as part of getting the ministry of the Lord off the ground. So this could refer to actual you know, sustenance, actual food. But in context, it almost certainly has to also refer to something more than just physical nutrients, physical calories, you know, physical vitamins. It refers to some other kind of nutrition that we need that they are receiving through this, through the antecedent paragraph through the weekly devotion of themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, breaking of bread, what we would call communion. So let's talk a little bit about what this is, about what the food is. Um, And I don't mean to, like, I'm not... There we go. Um, I I don't mean to, you know make this purely gospel 101 um, and, you know, recite for all of you what the gospel message is. But I do think we need some context to what in Acts are they talking about? What is the food, to go back to the title of the class, what is that for which we are begging that we are uniquely fed on Sunday morning worship? So the four truths. Um, and just so you know, this, this structure these four truths, this should give you all some peace of mind, okay? This is not Oscar. Oscar did not come up with this as the food. Um, I mean, technically, the Bible came up with it in Jesus and God, but the, the structuring of this way is straight from Spurgeon when he talks about what do we need to be fed with on Sunday mornings? What are we fed with? Breaking it down this way is, is a Spur, I'm sure others, but a, a Spurgeonism. Um, the truth about God. That's the first thing. Uh, he is the God of creation. He is the God of eternal existence. Nothing exists apart from him. We don't exist apart from him. Our children don't exist apart from him. The world does not exist apart from him. He was there in the beginning, Genesis 1, um, when Mo, you know, Moses when Moses at the burning bush and he says, who should I say send me? And God says, I am that I am. He is, he always was. It's everything. That's who we're talking about, just for context, that we commune with intimately on Sunday mornings. He's the God of sovereign mercy. In Romans 9, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Um, John Frame, in his just awesome book, if you haven't read it, Salvation Belongs to the Lord, 
paraphrasing slightly, uh, says, by God's sovereign plan, however, he sees to it that the conditions are met for the salvation of his people, his children. Okay? He is sovereign over the mercy extends. He extends it because he wants to. It's in his character to do it, and he's above the mercy he extends. He is, this is the hard part, he is also the God of righteousness. Right? I mean, Numbers 14 tells us he does not leave the guilty unpunished. There is a consequence and a punishment for evil and for sin. And he is the God of unrighteousness. Um, and he is also the God of unchanging grace. We know from Malachi 3, For I, the Lord, do not change. The God of creation, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Jesus, the God of 2016 Birmingham, Alabama, is one and the same, always the same. Um, Spurgeon summarizes the truth about God this way. The God of the Bible is totally and completely independent of his creatures as far as his strength, his wisdom, his power, his beauty, and his glory are concerned. We do not add to his glory. We receive and share in his glory. The God we preach is the God of eternal existence, the God of creation, the God of sovereign mercy, the God of righteousness, and the God of unchanging grace. He is the God upon whom we depend, the God to whom we look, and the God without whom we cannot exist. All things that we have, we receive of him. We return nothing but that which he gives us. What is it to preach the gospel? It is to preach the truth about God. Um, the truth about man is just a whole lot more simple. I mean, it's, it's Romans 10. It's one, it's, it can be summarized in, in all of these things. We ain't. Right? Okay? Roman, as you all know, Romans said, we are not righteous. Um, we are not unchanging. Our condition, what we are, is the same from the beginning of time. That's true. We are broken. We are sinful. Me, you, all, everyone from all of eternity. Um, and then the truth about Jesus. Uh, the truth about Jesus is that he is God. So all of these things too. Right? He is also Lord. Um, John, in, in John 1 kind of tying Jesus, as you all know probably, John 1 ties these truths into Jesus as well. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, Spurgeon, again, about Jesus, and this is a little bit long, and I do apologize for that. Um, I probably should have cut it, but I couldn't find any part of it I really wanted to cut, so you're going to hear all of it. Um, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is very God of very God. He is the Messiah. He did not die as a martyr. He did not die as an example. He came down here and died on the cross as the victorious, conquering, successful redeemer of his people. He died as the covenant redeemer. He died for the covenant people. He died to accomplish a task given him by the Father before the world's creation. When completed his suffering on Calvary, he said it is finished. He cannot fail. Christ is not a frustrated Redeemer. He is not a disappointed Savior. He is not a defeated Savior. He is not poor, weak. He is not a reformer up there in heaven, crying his eyes out because people won't let him have his way. He is the conquering, victorious Messiah who is seated on the right hand of the Father, expecting until his enemies become his footstool. He is the Lord of the living and the dead. A preacher said to a congregation one time, Won't you make Jesus your Lord? I emphatically declare 
to this congregation that you cannot make Jesus Christ your Lord. The Father in heaven has already beat you to it. He is your Lord. He is your Lord if you are saved. He is your Lord if you are damned. He is your Lord if you are on the right hand with the sheep. He is your Lord if you are on the left hand with the goats. He is your Lord. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven, earth, and hell that he is Lord. You don't make him Lord. You recognize him as Lord. God made him Lord. The Father has delivered all things to the Son, the Scripture says. He purchased that right through his death on Calvary. Jesus Christ is not a fire escape from hell. He is Lord. He is not a doormat named Jesus. He is Lord. If any man shall confess with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, he shall be saved. His life is a perfect righteousness. His death a perfect sacrifice. We better start telling people the truth about this man called Jesus. To preach the gospel is to tell the truth about Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not here to pastor a church. I'm here to preach the gospel. I'm not here to see how many people I can baptize. I'm here to preach the gospel. And I did not come to preach it with wisdom of words, lest I cover the cross of Christ so that man can't even recognize it because of my intellectuality or my vocabulary. It's the truth of Jesus. He is God. He is Lord. He came for a purpose, and he came and accomplished that purpose for us. Um, you put these three things together, and you get number four, which is the truth about salvation. This is the food the food that we have to receive every day, all the time, but particularly on Sundays. Y'all will probably recognize the Keller quote. Um, the gospel is the good news of gracious acceptance. Jesus lived the life we should live. He also paid the penalty we owe for the rebellious life we do live. He did this in our place. We are not reconciled to God through our efforts and record, as in all other religions, but through his efforts and record. Christians who trust Christ for their acceptance with God rather than their own moral character, commitment, or performance are simuleustus et peccator, simultaneously sinful yet accepted. We are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe, yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope at the same time. Uh, John Frame, again, put it this way, Everything we know about God we know because he has told us through his personal speech. All our duties to God are from his commands. All the promises of salvation through the grace of Christ are God's promises from his own mouth. What other source could there possibly be for a salvation message that so contradicts our own feelings of self-worth, our own ideas of how to earn God's favor? So there it is. Now, I think that the difficulty in tying this into Sunday church attendance, at least for me, is this. We're a church that believes in the preservation of the saints. We're a church that believes that once I'm saved, I'm saved forever. And I was, in fact, saved from the beginning of time, and it is finished. And that's 100% true. I mean, there, there's no, don't hear me as hedging or backing off of that in the least. That is the gospel truth, praise be to God. So why then, right? I mean, that if, if, if you had a, a really uh, smart and insightful child, high school student, whatever, they might, that might be the argument that they would advance. Like, well, wait a second, you know? I know how this works. I acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. He died for my sins. Um, I uh, acknowledge that he rose from the dead. So eh, why do I need to keep going on Sundays if it is finished? Like, that's, that's, that's the question. Um, the cop-out answer is 
back to Exodus because he told you to. Um, but what we're going to try to what we're trying to do today is to answer the why. So why does God command us and our children and all believers everywhere to come experience this truth, to experience this rest, the, the Sabbath rest of this truth on Sundays corporately with you know the body of Christ? Um, how are we fed, right? By Oh, that's exactly right. We come to interact, to have intimacy with Him. And that only happens through time. And I think importantly, it happens individually. But what we see from the Scriptures and the tradition of the church is it happens corporately as well. It happens at, in the body together, um, body of Christ. And just an aside before we get to this, because this is a complete non sequitur, but I just, it kind of struck me while I was preparing last night. Um, you know, there's a lot of really bad things about the Internet, as we all know, you know, from pornography to cyberbullying to just like, you know, hate and anger and vitriol. But y'all, I mean, if you're me and you're, you hadn't been to seminary and you're not Mark Genelette and you're not as studied in the word as, you know, some of the, you know, older, wiser members of this church, it's just a remarkable thing that you, that, that us, you, me, whatever, can just get on the internet and you can find out what Charles Spurgeon said about a verse. You can find out the entire, you know, works of, uh, you know, Calvin or online or Bart or contemporary people like Keller or Frame or St. Augustine. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I just, for all of the evil, what a blessing in that regard to be alive today where Oscar Price doesn't have to go to a library but can prepare a Sunday school lesson by Googling, like, what did Spurgeon say about this so that to compensate for my lack of knowledge. Total non sequitur. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, how, how are we fed? Our weekly Sabbath rest is relief from our self-salvation project through experiencing once again those truths. Here is a, an analogy that some people give that I think is pretty good. I think it breaks down a little bit, but it's close enough. Jesus is the antidote for our disease of original sin. I mean, we know that because of Jesus on the cross, at the end of our life, if we accept him because of the price he paid, because God willed it to be, we are in heaven forever with the saints praising God. I mean, you know, praise be to God that that is true. But there are constant recurring symptoms of the disease on this side of eternity before we are eternally cured. We come to church to treat those painful symptoms every week, every Sunday, to be reminded again that the truth is out there that cures Oscar Price of the symptoms of his original sin, of his self-salvation project. Um, if we go back to Acts 2, it outlines for us the three ways, the three, and we're getting a little bit, this is a little bit kind of um, esoteric. I mean, if you want to be like a theology nerd, we would be talking about the ordinary means of grace here. If you want to go like Google that and kind of explore what all that means. But this is the way that Sunday worship administers grace to us. Three things. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship 
thing the first, the breaking of bread, thing the second, and the prayers, thing the third. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Um, the key thing here, I think key point here, is the close connection of the church to the persons of the apostles. You know, if you read later on in Acts 4, um, it's, it's, just, it's clear that in the early church, um, there's this connection to Peter and John. Um, and, you know, they had been with Jesus. But when people were devoting themselves to the word, part of what they were doing is devoting themselves to the words of Peter and John given to Peter and John by Jesus. Now, we are fortunate that we live in a time where we actually have a, a printed Bible that everyone has, you know, and that we should all use as an important resource. But it's always been out true throughout the history of Christendom that part of Sunday worship is the message we receive from the apostles. That is what God intended, is for us to come on Sunday uh, just as the early church was going to Peter and John and interact with the persons of our apostles here, which, not to put too fine a point of it, means what we hear from the pulpit. I mean, that's not just, you know, something we do because it's an American tradition um, that you go and you hear a sermon on Sunday morning. That's not just something we do because we think that, you know, gosh, Andrew and uh, Craig and Deborah, and that they're all really, really smart. I mean, that's true, too. <coughs> We do this because this is the structure that was set up in the very beginning during Acts 2, that the, 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 the apostles themselves would teach the body of believers and that through that, the message of grace would emanate out to the church. Um, closely related, I think, to the teaching of the apostles is the fellowship um, of the apostles. Um, it's, it's a brother and sisterhood. In the early church, it was the nucleus, of, frankly, of a new social organization. Um, and we come on Sunday because we are fed by the gospel just as the early church was by that fellowship. Okay? Importantly, both of those things are things that do not happen on your own in isolation. So going back to the why, why Sunday worship, you know, why can't I just read my Bible at home? You know, I mean, I've... Some of you with children have probably heard that, you know, because God understood that we had a specific need to hear the gospel through the apostles' teaching and fellowship. The word of God proceeded from the apostles, fellowship proceeded from the apostles. Um, and actually, to go back to that, it kind of reminds me of that little song you would have maybe sang when you were... In elementary school, you know, the church is the people. I mean, that is true. That has always been true for all of time. Um, that God's bridegroom is, excuse me, God's bride, Jesus' bride, is the people, um, the apostles. Um, and, and you do not interact with the apostles but for engaging in corporate worship on Sunday morning. Um, the breaking of bread, obviously, we're talking about the Lord's Supper. That's what they're referring to. Um, we a lot of different scripture for that, but 1 Corinthians uh, 10. Um, if, we, if we go back to, this is the actual experiencing of the grace, right, is the breaking of bread. Um, the, if you want to think of it in very purely theological terms, um, 
the fellowship is, is a ministering, it's a vehicle through which the grace is passed on. But this is actually grace itself. We take in God's grace on Sunday morning as a means of resting from the self-salvation project. And then lastly, prayer. Um, prayer is a lot of things, and so I'm not trying to say this is all that prayer is, but prayer is um, profoundly is seeking intimacy with God, to your outstanding point earlier, that um, we have a relational God, and he wants to be relational with us. It is a truth of Acts and a truth of the Bible that both, you can't, that both individual and corporate intimacy with God are indispensable, absolutely indispensable. Um, to Sabbath rest, which is to say that, yes, we are called to and we need to and Oscar needs to, even though he doesn't, spend time with the Lord, just me and my creator, praying and talking to him and receiving his grace every day, every day receiving the reminder of the salvation that comes from him and not from myself. But, but, it is also true that, it, that, that we need to engage in corporate prayer as well, to be intimate with the Lord as a group. You know, in our particular Anglican Episcopal tradition, I mean, the prayer book is so good at that, isn't it? I mean, just the whole structure of it, that we together through our prayers, when we come together for Sabbath rest on Sunday, every Sunday, both when we do communion and when we do morning prayer, we together through our prayers remind ourselves of those four truths we talked about before. We hear them. We praise God for them. And through that, we are intimate with the Lord together as a group in a just, a, to be candid, a unique kind of shared intimacy that I cannot conceive of existing anywhere else but prayer to our God together as a group. And God knew that we needed that as well. So, what do we tell our children? Because you're not going to tell your children. Well, Spurgeon said. Um, this is just, I mean, I think that's, I know the title of the class is What Do We Tell Our Children? And I don't mean this purely as a cop-out, but I think it's true. I think the answer to that question will vary broadly based on the age of your children, uh, based on their personalities, their curiosity, the degree to which they are or are not rebelling from the faith, rebelling from you. The, the answer is different. But I think the answer always includes these three things, which we talked about earlier. We need rest from trying to be good enough. And see, here's the thing is like that's true even for the child who isn't being good in the traditional sense of the world. The child who is the high school student who's rebelling is trying to be good enough for something, be it peers or friends or, 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 or themselves. So however an individual child defines it. Every child and every person is trying to be good enough. And my gosh, we need rest from that, right? I guess I could say, my God, we need rest from that, right? That rest is only in the gospel. Nowhere else, no other way, that rest, that Sabbath rest from working, as Keller talked about earlier, every moment of every day to be good enough, that rest is only found in the gospel. God, in his perfect love for us, has set apart a specific time 
for us to experience that rest and has told us you may not know it, but you need it. Every day, but you need it on Sunday. You need it with fellow believers. And I'm going to feed you with that rest. I'm going to feed you with that on Sunday. You know, I don't know how far that gets <laughs> with a specific child. Um, I don't know how far that gets with a specific adult. Sometimes I don't know how far that gets with me. Um, but I know that it's true. Um, and if you'll allow me to wrap up a little bit anecdotally, um, I would say this, just as maybe encouragement to a parent who has a child who just isn't walking with the Lord and doesn't want to. Um, you know, I, I uh, grew up in a family where we went to church every Sunday, no matter what. I mean, it, I mean it, we would go to church on vacation. We went to church. Um, and at, at the time, I, uh, well, not right at the time, but in high school, even as a Christian, I kind of thought that was pretty legalistic. You know, I thought that there was a little too much law from the old man there. And it was okay to sometimes sleep in and skip church. And as I get older, I kind of see how maybe he was right, which I guess is what happens sometimes. <laughs> um, but I was from a family of four. And at varying times, some of us wandered from the faith, rebelled to varying degrees, including certainly me from church attendance, from wanting to go to church, from going to church in college, from, you know, there's, there's the whole spectrum of behavior there, both in terms of sin and also in terms of our view of church attendance. Um, the Bible does promise us, raise your children up in the ways of the Lord, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. It's a really hard verse. Tommy Mayfield in our small group one time, I raised the question like, that doesn't seem like that's true. I mean, I know it's in the Bible and it's true, but I know so many families who raise their children up in the ways of the Lord and have these high school or college or post-college students who are not walking with the Lord. And Tommy acutely pointed out, what well, doesn't, the promise isn't that they will always walk, but they, they will never depart from it. The promise isn't that they will not depart from it when they're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. It's this sort of vague, when they are old, they will not depart from it. And I can tell you just anecdotally how that promise played itself out for my parents, which was that even though some of us were brought to church kicking and screaming in high school or didn't you know, really go to church at college, that my parents required it of us. Probably, I don't recall, gave some sort of explanation like this that we didn't listen to. It planted a seed, even if it was by osmosis. I mean, even if it's just a kid sitting there who you think's not listening and listening at all, such that when ultimately, in our own time, we each chose to follow the Lord, there was this whole wealth of knowledge about truth about God and uh, truth about His nature and truth about the Scriptures that somehow had just been sort of floating around in there. Um, there was a tremendous blessing for us that when we did choose individually to be Christians in our own right, to experience God's salvation that he's given to us to go to church, that we had this whole foundation. And, it, and what was fascinating to me is the, fa the nature of God's truth and God's word, which does not return void as we know, is such that even a child who is defiantly sitting in church, rebelliously trying not to listen, cannot help but absorb that gospel truth such that when the promise is complete and fulfilled at the end of time, 
that they will not depart from that truth. That truth is there, praise be to God. And so, I mean, it's easy for me to say as the parent of a five-year-old because I know that these things are much tougher with parents of older children. But praise be to God for all of us who are parents that we have that truth. Um, Yeah, I think that's it. Um, We have like three minutes left. Probably shouldn't throw it out for questions, but I guess I will if anyone has a question. No thoughts, no questions. Everyone's children go to church gladly every Sunday. I think that's a great point. I mean, your children seeing you read the Bible, your children seeing that you go to church, you know. Um, I'll throw this out there. Your children seeing you sin and acknowledge that sin before the cross on Sunday and in everyday life is powerful. I mean, some of the most powerful things from my childhood in terms of understanding the gospel was, was when my father apologized to us and said, I sinned and that hurt you and I'm sorry. It's kind of like, whoa, you know? I mean, you probably respond more like a smart aleck at the time. <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's profound. I mean, yeah. I mean, Emily, my wife, has talked about how Satan camps out at our house from like 7 to 8.30 every Sunday morning, just like doing everything in his power to create conflict and to make our 2-year-old have an accident and make our 5-year-old rip off his church clothes or whatever it is. And I, I mean, she's joking, but it's true. I mean, the enemy does not want you and your family here on Sunday. I don't mean to speak in those kinds of terms, which are not really the way we talk, but this is absolutely true. Satan does not want you and your family here on Sunday because he knows that when they're here, you're fed with this stuff. And praise be to God for that. All right. Thanks. Thank you.